Hey everyone, Samit here. Just a quick note about this episode. Since we've recorded this episode a couple weeks ago, there's been very exciting news that many of you likely heard about, uh, that the FDA extended emergency youth authorization to children ages 12 to 15 for the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. Kids have already been getting a vaccine over the past week and over the weekend, um, and it's very exciting news. And though it certainly changes the calculation and, and the, the planning process, vaccination in the U.S. There are certainly many, many hurdles that lay ahead of us, many challenges that we continue to address. And certainly for this population of, of medically complex children, a number of questions are left to be unanswered. So, so I just want to call attention to the fact that this episode was recorded before the FDA extended the EUA um, for children. Oh, but again, many things that we talked about here are still applicable um, and are still questions left to be answered um, for, for children in this vulnerable population. So with that being said, I hope you enjoy this episode um, about code vaccine in children with medical complexity. Well, it's a little bit pedantic, reading journals like The Lancet, up to date, and those medical reviews. But here we're more about the antics than being caught up in semantics, so listen here for your pediatric news. Hey everyone, welcome to Pedantic. I'm Sumit. This is part three in our three-part series on the COVID-19 vaccine for children. For this part, I'm joined by Divya Lakhani, who is a pediatric hospitalist at Columbia and the medical director of the Complex Care Program. Divya, thank you so much for joining today. I'm looking forward to hearing um, your thoughts and expertise on this topic, especially around children with medical complexity and COVID and the vaccine. So let's get right into it. Um, so what unique challenges um, have children with, with medical complexity and their parents, caregivers faced during the COVID-19 pandemic? You know, me, I think there are all of our families and all of our patients have faced a lot of challenges during this time. But I think parents and children with medical complexity have faced a lot of unique issues. I think, um, as you know, many of these children have a lot of home-based services they have home nursing, they have home health aides, they get PT and OT in their home. And at the start of the pandemic, a lot of those services just completely stopped. Um, and, you know, as the pandemic has progressed and we've had our first wave and our second wave, um, a lot of that has fluctuated. Like some people have been able to go back into the home, but that was definitely something a lot of our parents experienced and a lot of these patients experienced, huge like gaps in their in their healthcare. I mean, and parents and caregivers were really forced to take on some of those additional responsibilities, which I think provided a unique challenge for sure. Um, many of our families who were eligible for these services that had agencies that were still going to come into the home actually decided that they didn't want anyone to come into the home. They really wanted to minimize the number of people that were going in and out of their house. Um, and so they voluntarily decided to cut off all of their services for a period of time until things with the pandemic got, got better. I mean, that takes me to the next question, which is this idea of, of the kind of care that parents provide in the homes. And, you know, should parents of, 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 of children with medical complexity be considered essential healthcare workers? And if, if so, do you think they should have been vaccinated earlier on? Or I, I absolutely think that parents um, and caregivers of children with medical complexity are essential frontline workers. I mean, they are doing, some of them run 
little mini ICUs in their home, you know, like patients who are then dependent, um, their families are the ones titrating their ventilators a lot of the time. They're doing a lot of suctioning. They're managing their respiratory support. They're giving feeds. They're hanging TPN. They're doing all of the things that we can do in a hospital setting, but in, in their home. And so I absolutely do think that they, they should have been considered frontline workers. Um, and in some states, they were. And so the CDC put out like pretty vague guidelines about essential workers. And um, there were a number of different categories that qualified as essential workers. And then each state kind of took it upon themselves to define frontline workers in a number of different ways. So in some states, parents and caregivers were eligible in like phase 1A, um, but in other states, they were not. And so I think the rollout itself um, really didn't take into consideration this like unique population consistently. And so as a result, a lot of our families, um, both in our program, but also in the hospital that we take care of, some they, there have been a lot of challenges in getting them vaccinated, even now as eligibility has increased. Do you know how many states, was it a handful of states or was it a, a, pretty good, a pretty good subset of the states that had that? I believe it was only a handful of states. Some states allowed um, caregivers to get documentation from help, from their own healthcare providers or their ch- child's healthcare providers, stating that they were um, caregivers for a child with complexity who has significant healthcare needs, and they were able to get the vaccine that way. But again, that's adding like another layer, right? Another thing that these families have to do to, to be eligible for the vaccine. And again, that wasn't consistent. Like in New York State, we were not allowed to do that. We had a lot of families reach out to ask if that was something that we could offer them. Unfortunately, we were not able to do so. You know, over the course of the pandemic, we've seen, um, o- over time, we've gotten to understand the effect of COVID-19 in children. And certainly children have, have been less affected than adults. Um, in, in sort of the acute COVID sense. But of course, there are, are longer term sequela such as Miss C um, that, that affect children. And the children that are affected or higher risk of being affected are children with, with, with comor- more comorbid conditions or, or, or complex um, conditions. And so what other risk mitigation strategies aside from vaccination can be used to lessen the spread of COVID-19 in this population? Yeah, you know, I, I think... You're absolutely right. Um, children with medical complexity, and again, that that's a big umbrella term for a large number of children, um, are just generally speaking, pre-pandemic, are at risk for a lot of morbidity and mortality from respiratory infections. We know that. And luckily, I think just anecdotally, and there's not really great literature on this yet, we haven't seen a ton of kids with severe medical illness come in with severe COVID infections. And so I think we're really lucky in that sense that we haven't been able to see that. And I think that's in large part due to what their parents are able to do for them at home. Um, And so, you know, I think vaccinating those who are eligible to be vaccinated is a great strategy, but obviously that there's so many children who we just can't vaccinate yet. And so I think, you know, vaccinating their caregivers is number one, right? Um, The phrase is like cocooning, where you vaccinate their caregivers and their close contacts, and that provides an added layer of protection to those children. So I think anyone who's going to be in close contact and close proximity with those children should absolutely be vaccinated. And then I think taking the precautions that we've all been taking when things with the pandemic were really severe and badly, right? So limiting the number of people who go in and out of the home, making sure that people who are going to be around your child are vaccinated and aren't really engaging in a lot of high-risk behaviors, 
making sure that no one who's sick is entering the home, things like that. You know, I think what we've learned during this pandemic is that um, it's one thing for their child to get sick. And we've had a number of children in our complex care program who have had COVID and who've had very mild symptoms. And we're so thankful for that. We've had a number of caregivers who've gotten sick from COVID. And I think that has shown us that there are such significant implications to the healthcare system when these families get sick, right? Like I mentioned earlier, a lot of them aren't getting the services they need right now, um, whether that's because their parents are choosing to not have anyone enter the home, um, but also just because there's been limited access during this time. And so when a parent gets sick and they're not one, maybe even if they have mild symptoms, they don't want to be around their child, but they may be forced to because there's no one else to care for them. Um, or they may be so sick that they're not even able to do that. And they, a lot of them, a lot of families don't have other supports that can come into the home. Or if there's a COVID exposure, it's really hard to say, hey, I have COVID. Can you come over and help me take care of my child, my child who may be on aerosolizing procedures and um, technology and things of that nature. And pre-pandemic, I think respite services were have already been so limited for these families. And so often tertiary and quaternary hospitals become, you know, the respite facility. And we've seen that here, right? We've taken care of a number of kids who are, are relative, doing relatively well after their COVID exposure, but their caregivers are not able to care for them. And they ended up in the hospital for several weeks until their families are much better. Yeah. Um, and so... I think there's just so many challenges that we've seen during this time and hopefully lessons learned, right? And opportunities as we potential, if we encounter something similar going forward. Yeah, uh, you mentioned cocooning, which is a, um, which is a, uh, a well-studied uh, strategy around influenza uh, prevention, particularly in, in the under six month age group, um, which is certainly a strategy that can be, that has been used um, in this particular scenario. Um, you sort of allude to this a little bit, but, you know, decreasing opportunities for exposure for members of the family. And I wonder if you can comment a little bit on um, the use of telemedicine in this population to decrease office visits, which are in of themselves another opportunity for exposure for children and their families. Yeah, you know, I think telemedicine has been a really wonderful tool for our families. Um, as you know, children with mental complexity, it's those especially who are technology dependent and developmentally delayed who rely on wheelchairs and other um, modes of transportation, it can be physically challenging to get them into the their into our clinics. Um, you have to time things around their treatments. You have to figure out if you need one or more than one person to physically transport them here. And then once they're here, our clinic spaces aren't really well designed to accommodate these children. There's not really great space to keep their wheelchair. Oftentimes parents have told me that they need to run a feed or hang TPN or do other things. And there's not really good spaces in our hospital system or clinic systems rather to, to do that kind of thing. So telemedicine has really provided us with a really unique way to see these families. Um, and I think our, you know, at least the families in our program have really loved it. And a lot of them have said they're never going back to <laughs> person visits. Um, and so I think the challenge going forward now that it's been so widely adopted is going to be is going to be thinking about which visits really need to happen in person um, and which can be done over telemedicine, right? You can't do the best physical exam virtually, but there are some things that are really well suited um, to be done in this format and others that need to be done in person. So um, 
again, I think this is like a really great, this technology has been really great for our families. And I think going forward, we can just continue, we have to, con- we can continue to use it, but have to be mindful and thoughtful about which visits um, are done in, in this mode and which need to be done in person. So uh, perhaps a silver lining of, of the of the pandemic um, for these families. And the last question before we wrap up is regarding considerations which take into account when deciding when to vaccinate these children. Um, you know, they certainly are in a, in a special category. And do they have any, any, any different um, considerations than the general population of, of, of children when we decide on vaccinating them? You know, I think other than the current restrictions or um, ineligibility criteria that, that are in place for children 16 and older right now, I don't really think there's any, we should have a lot of hesitation in vaccinating these children. I think if anything, we know um, that they're at higher risk for severe infection, just based on what we know from them when they get other respiratory infections. And so I think just like we recommend flu vaccine to all of our children, including our children with medical complexity, I would advocate that all of these children when eligible should really get vaccinated. Um, and again, that may not be able to happen for a long time. And so in the interim, I think vaccinating their caregivers or families, all of their close contacts is a way to mitigate risk. Yeah, that, I think that that's a, that's a great point um, and a great point to kind of like leave it on there, which is, um, uh, and which we've been talking about with other, other um, experts during this series, the potential benefit of vaccines outweigh the risks as far as we know. And even though we're still waiting on emergency use, use authorization from the FDA or, or a full-fledged um, uh, endorsement authorization for children, um, something that we can definitely all agree upon, which is vaccinations are great for children all around. Yeah, uh, exactly. I drop up any, any last last thoughts, any other advice for our listeners in, in terms of taking care of, of children with medical complexity and their families um, in the pandemic as we, as we navigate this all together? You know, I think we as pediatricians are really um, uniquely positioned. We, I think a lot of us go into pediatrics because we don't just work with children, we work with the whole family and it's a, the family is a unit. And so I think when we're seeing these patients in clinic or in hospital settings, asking caregivers if they've gotten vaccinated, I think is really important. Um, and if they haven't, asking why and seeing what those barriers were. I mean, there is obviously lot of vaccine misinformation, vaccine hesitancy, which is one piece of it, but a lot, there's still a lot of barriers to getting vaccinated, even though eligibility criteria has expanded. Um, So I would encourage everyone to ask. I think we can do a lot of things to help. Um, You know, we in our, in our program, we've been able to help our families enroll in a lot of the online portals um, so they can make appointments. Um, If language is a barrier, we've been able to provide them with a bilingual provider that's been able to help them make the appointments or navigate the technology they need um, and things like that. So I think, you know, just ask, um, be proactive about it um, and really try to get as many of our families vaccinated as possible. I think that's the best thing that we can do. Well, thanks for joining. Thank uh, you for having me. I always love being on the show. Oh, I feel like I learned so much every time we talk. So it's the, the, the pleasure's all mine. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you.
hear from some of our listeners about why they chose to get the COVID-19 vaccine. My name is Maya and I got the vaccine so I could go home and visit my family. Hi, my name is Deidre. I got vaccinated because I'm a mom of four, I'm married and I work in a hospital. So the best option for me to protect myself and my family and my coworkers to get, is to get vaccinated. My name is Jen. I got vaccinated because I really hate COVID. I really love immunity, also herd immunity. Um, I'm really tired of this pandemic. I miss my mom. Um, why did I get vaccinated? First of all, I wanted to protect myself and protect my, my family members at home. I was worried about um, bringing something home to them, so I wanted to make sure that I was vaccinated. And I also wanted to protect, um, I guess, everyone I'm around because I, you know, I live in Manhattan where everyone is just on top of each other. So I just wanted to make sure that I wasn't giving anything or anyone in the community something. Thanks for listening. Hope you uh, learned something about code vaccines. I know I learned a ton of this three-part series. Um, and just in closing, stay safe, uh, take care of each other and continue to talk to your patients and your neighbors and your friends and family about the COVID-19 vaccine. You know, we will all do our part in helping our country and our world really get out of this pandemic together.